are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. Good morning. Our scripture reading from today is John 13, verses 1 through 20. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet, but but not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That is why he said, Not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so am I. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example, that you also should do this as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant, It is not greater than his master, nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. For the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sends me. This is the word of the Lord. It's good to see you all. Um, I say this every week, but it's true. I'm just super thankful for you uh, in a variety of ways. Uh, I can't express them all, but it's just amazing for me to see God's grace in you and continuing to work in you. And being able to hear how God's grace is working in you, it's awesome. We had a great family gathering this last Wednesday night. It was fantastic, and it's great to see many of you there. I'm so thankful for you. But we're continuing on this week with our trek uh, through our sermon series, Reset, You know, kind of getting back to the basics of following Jesus. And we've been here for nine weeks. We're going to be here for another five weeks uh, up through the end of July. And it's been super great for me. I hope it's been great for you. Uh, Selfishly, it's been good for me just to be refreshed and reminded of of just following Christ 101. You know, what does that look like? What does it mean to be a Christ follower? And what should my life individually look like? What should our lives as a church collectively look like as we walk this road of following Jesus? 
Um, but so it's been really great, and I pray the Holy Spirit has used it in your life as he's used it in my life. Um, so we're going to be trekking through the end of July in this sermon series. Uh, but I've, I've, uh, I've been a Christian, so I was thinking about this the other day. I've been a Christian since I was six years old. So, uh, you know, I heard, I've heard stories many times from believers who thought they trusted Christ at an early age, even one this morning, maybe they were baptized as kids, and then later on in life had a realization that, you know, I really wasn't a Christ follower then, and I'm putting my trust in him now. Maybe they didn't understand what they were doing at a young age. Uh, maybe that's your story. Uh, maybe that's your story. But I, I truly believe by God's grace that at six years old, he saved me. Uh, I, this childlike understanding of, of God and of sin and of Jesus dying on the cross for my sin and rising from the dead. I had just this moment of, of just, again, basic understanding of the gospel at six. And I truly believe that was just a genuine salvation moment. And that was now like 30, literally 30 years ago, all right? Um, so I've been a Christian for 30 years, which is weird, um, but it's true. I've, I've literally been in church almost my entire life. Um, my dad was a pastor for a long time, so literally probably my entire life I've been in church. And I remember even as a kid uh, reading the Bible on my own. You know, many times uh, I had no idea what I was reading, but you know, I remember sitting down, maybe my Bible of choice when I was a kid was like that NIV student Bible. Remember this one? It was like black. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It was like black paperback. It had these pink letters on it. Student Bible is awesome. Um, but I would read it. And uh, having been exposed to the scriptures for this long in my life now, um, there are stories I've read many, many times. And there are pros and cons to reading stories many, many times. I and mean, one of the pros of that is, you know, due to familiarity with the stories, I can recall them pretty easily, you know, and where they are in the Bible. I can bring them to my mind in a conversation. But on the flip side of that same coin, one of the cons of, of being so familiar with these stories is sometimes they, they lose the wonder and the awe, right? Because you've just read them so many times. They just become uh, another story, another truth. You know, my first love I once had for these truths sometimes has grown cold. Sometimes it's faded away. It's not stirred up like I desire it to be when I read the scriptures. It's like before I got married when I would be hanging out with Christine at her apartment. I know you've probably been here too. It's like 10 or 11 o'clock. You're just exhausted, and I knew I still had to drive home. And so I begrudgingly walk to my car half asleep. I get in my car in the dead of night and drive to my apartment. And then you get married, and you realize, my goodness, I don't have to drive home anymore. Like, I'm home. I'm here. I can walk back to my bedroom. Uh, it doesn't even matter. This is amazing. There's just a wonder and awe about, you know, not having to get in my car at the dead of night, which I go to bed at like 9.30 anyway, so I'm surprised I got home, like, in one piece in those times. But you sit and you go on dates with your wife, or I do, and early on we talk about, man, isn't it so great that we can just drive home and not have to go anywhere else? You don't have to drop me off. You can just come home. It's just amazing. And then after a certain amount of time, as it always happens, you lose the wonder of that. Right? You lose the wonder of, of being able to walk back to your bedroom instead of drive home. You know, it's the same thing with the scriptures oftentimes. You know, sometimes we just lose the wonder of and the awe of what God is doing and has done in history, in time, among his people. And this story that we are looking at today is one of those stories that sometimes I think can become too familiar to us. I know it's become familiar to me. 
You know, the story of Jesus washing the disciples' feet, I've read, I've read hundreds of times. I've reflected on it at Maundy Thursday services. I've seen it acted out in like passion plays, you know, as a kid. I've been a part of foot washing services as the washee and also the washer um, in those services. I'm so familiar with the account that it had in many ways just lost its, its wonder of what was actually going on. But this week, as I've studied this passage for the hundredth time, it's been different. By God's grace, it's been different in my life. You know, the Lord has been so kind to me this week in my prep. I mean, he's reignited my, my personally my heart and my affections for Christ in a way through this account that hasn't happened in a long, long time. It's produced joy in me and thanksgiving in me and captivated my, my heart with the love and the teach, the love of our, our Lord and teacher in this text. And, you know, each week I try to come up with a, a concise, you know, statement to give you that you can remember, you know, if you forget everything else, you can remember this one statement and something you can take away. And I try to be creative and brainstorm something catchy and pithy and, you know, to the point that encapsulates the sermon. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. And I thought and prayed and meditated on this text this week. And the only sentence I kept coming back to was, Jesus loves us, church. I mean, he truly loves us. You know, it's not something imaginary or some kind of wishful thinking. It's not something we hope that he still has for us or we pray in moments of weakness that his love for us hasn't faded or fallen away, but that his love is real, that his love is in excess, that his love never fades, his love rests upon his people. Even in moments, in the final moments of our Savior's life, he loves his people. So this morning, the end of my prayers for you has been the prayer for me, and it's that the Lord will take our hearts that, that doubt Christ's love, hearts that have grown cold or calloused or indifferent or too familiar with the love of Christ, and he will take this text and truly see, or will truly see, he will show us just how far Jesus stooped to demonstrate his love for his people. And I pray the Holy Spirit awakens your joy and your gratitude beyond measure as he's awakened mine this week. So I'm excited about looking at this, and I'm confident he's going to answer our prayers because he loves us. Because he loves us. So let's look at it. Let's look at this text for this morning. You know, up to this point in the Gospel of John, the emphasis has been on Christ's love for the world. That word world in the Gospel of John being used to describe the, the, those outside of the faith. If you read John and you come across that word, nine out of ten times it's talking about those that are not following Christ. And so up to this point in the Gospel of John, the focus has been on unbelieving men and women. Jesus is ministering to, to bring them into the fold, so to speak, to bring them into the people of God. And then here, at the beginning of chapter 13, all the way through chapter 17, Jesus turns his focus to his own, to use the language of verse 1, his own. And this discourse that's happening in the final hours of the life of Jesus, he is assuring his disciples of his love, that although he's leaving the world, he's not abandoning them, that his presence through the Holy Spirit would remain with them, comforting them, reminding them of his words, leading them, guiding them into truth, giving them courage in the face of opposition. When we come to chapter 13 and 
As we do that, John gives us insight into the heart and thoughts of Christ. You know, there are many texts in the Gospels that talk about the compassion of Jesus. There are many texts in the Gospels that talk about the teachings of Jesus, that communicate his miracles, the works of Jesus. But there are very few texts in the Gospels that communicate the heart of Jesus, what he's feeling, what he's thinking in a moment. But verse 1 of chapter 13 gives us a glimpse into the heart of Christ in the final moments of his life on the earth. Read it with me again, verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Those are, the, those are the words of John the Baptist in John chapter 1, verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And now the time had come. The feast of the Passover, the hour that had been talked about in the Gospel of John that had not yet come was now here. The hour where Christ would be offered up as the Passover Lamb. They would shed His blood on the tree. He'd be sacrificed to atone for the sins of His people. Literally hours from this moment in John chapter 13, Jesus would be betrayed. He would be beaten, abused, abandoned, alone, forsaken, physically dead. The hour had come. It was upon him. What would you be thinking in that moment? If you knew pain beyond measure and physical death were hours away, that 12 of your best friends sitting around you at dinner were all about to leave you, abandon you, disown you, that one of those 12 who you'd spent every day the last three years of your life with took about 100 bucks to hand you over to some guys that were going to humiliate you and mock you and kill you. Verse 2 tells us that Satan had already filled the heart of Judas to betray Christ. It had been decided. Judas had taken the money. It was going down. That the one who came from the Father, Jesus, verse 3, the one who'd reigned alongside the Father for all of eternity, the one who was worshipped in glory and splendor and majesty by the heavenly creatures, the one who did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, Philippians chapter 2, that this one who had no limitations in any sense of the word, the one with no limitations humbled himself to be confined to a frail human body to save those in frail human bodies, That after all these things, he's about to be killed by the very ones he created. Where would your mind be? Where would your heart be? And would your mind be preoccupied with feelings of terror at what was coming in the coming hours? Would it be filled with rage and anger at the injustice of it all? Would it be preoccupied with an overwhelming sense of sadness and grief? thinking that the last three years of your life had been spent in utter vanity and hopelessness. You wasted time pouring into these men who aren't even going to be by your side in your greatest hour of need. Would your heart and mind be full of vengeance? Would you even be at this meal, breaking bread with cowards and betrayers? Where would your mind be in all of this? can't even begin to imagine where my thoughts would be, what I'd be feeling in that moment. But Jesus, 
our kind and compassionate King, knowing all of these things were about to happen, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. The thoughts of Christ were on His own. Those around the table with Him, those who followed Him the last three years of His life, And as we learn from his prayer in John 17, his thoughts were also on us, Emmanuel Church. Those who would follow him throughout time and space, his thoughts were on us. Those who put our trust in Christ, we are his own. And as Christ is staring down his imminent death, his heart and mind are preoccupied with thoughts of us. That in these last moments of his life, he is going to continue choosing to love us. To demonstrate for us, even in the face of injustice and hurt and betrayal and need, what it looks like for love to be displayed in ways that are absolutely astounding, absolutely selfless, absolutely true. Love is the last response anyone would expect in this moment. Yet it's the response of our Savior. The great shepherd calls to his own and he says to us, this is love. This is love. There is no greater love than for one to lay down his life for his friends. I've loved you in this world. I love you to its full extent all the way to the cross. And I will secure your salvation and be able to demonstrate my love for you forever. So how did Jesus demonstrate his love for his own to the end? Well, first, in humility, Christ served us. In humility, Christ served us. Jesus, knowing what lies ahead in the coming hours, look at verse 4. He rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. And he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. In the Near East, when the first, in the first century, when guests would arrive for dinner into a home, the lowest of the low servants would wash their feet. It was, such a, it was such a menial task that by the first century, Jewish people insisted that Jews should not take the role. It was reserved for Gentile servants and Gentile slaves. It's unfathomable for any participant in a meal to assume this role, and even more unfathomable for the host of the meal to assume this role. And as the disciples who prepared for this meal entered into the room, there probably would have been a very quick and keen awareness that they forgot to hire somebody to wash everybody's feet. It would have probably, there would have probably been a, a moment of great cultural embarrassment to be reclining at the table with dirty, unwashed feet. And yet in spite of even their great embarrassment, none of them offered to do it. Not one of them as far as we can see in the text, even had an inkling of a thought to humble himself and assume this role. I mean, they're the disciples of the Messiah, right? There's no way one of those in the inner circle of the Savior of Israel should do something so lowly. Not too important. They were hand-picked. Hand-picked, chosen to follow the King of Israel. That role is reserved for servants. We're not. We're not those guys. And it's not hard to imagine these were their thoughts. I mean, these are the guys that throughout the Gospels are arguing over who's the greatest. 
over who will sit at the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in glory. They're guys who looked at villages full of Samaritans and legitimately asked Jesus if they should call down fire from heaven to burn them up. It's not hard to believe that not one of them, even in the face of much cultural embarrassment for not having a foot washer present, it's not hard to believe no one volunteered. So as they're looking around embarrassed like a bunch of morons, yet none of them are willing to step up into that role, Jesus stands up. And he puts on the garments of a slave. And he takes up a towel. And as their mouths are wide open in utter shock and disbelief, he begins to wash their grimy, dirty feet. Jesus Christ, who 33 years before had occupied a place of glory and honor in the heavenlies, a place that there is no other place above. He was in the highest of high places. He now assumes the lowest cultural position, stooping to wash the feet of these arrogant, ungrateful men. And he makes his way around the table. And you can just picture he's making his way around the table. The one who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He makes his way around the table and he comes to Thomas. A disciple whose doubts will drive him to disbelieve that Jesus had overcome death in the grave and he washes his feet. He comes to James and John, the sons of thunder, who in a few hours won't even be able to stay awake and pray their anguished Messiah who's about to bear the weight of sin upon his shoulders and he washes their feet. He comes to Judas. Judas Iscariot, the one with the clanging of coins in his pockets, the one with spite in his heart towards Jesus who now stoops to demonstrate his love for his betrayer, and he washes his feet. He comes to Simon Peter in verse 6. Simon Peter, the brazen one, the one who makes overhyped declarations of little follow-through and courage in the face of opposition. We're a few verses away from Peter not even being able to stand up and claim that he even knows Jesus three times. And Peter, as is true to his character, says in verse 6, Lord, do you want to wash my feet? Every word in that sentence in the Greek is emphatic. It's stressed. It's utterly incomprehensible and unfathomable that this is happening right now. That their master, Jesus, is washing the feet of his followers. Peter, probably feeling much shame in that moment, seeks to reject the actions of Jesus. But Jesus responds in verse 7. He says, what I'm doing, you don't understand now. But afterward, you'll understand. As Jesus will say it again in a few chapters, when the Spirit comes and fills up his followers, he will bring understanding to the words of Christ. He's alluding to this moment later. And then Peter, even more adamantly and forcefully, states, you shall never wash my feet. Again, In the Greek, literally it says, you shall by no means wash my feet as long as the world stands. His mind is still thinking on the cultural implications of what's happening. At this point, Peter's not thinking about the symbolism in the act itself. So Jesus starts to explain it. Verse 8, Jesus answers him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. The words of Jesus here carry a deeper meaning than just foot washing. He's not talking about foot washing anymore. If Peter can't even accept the humble act of his master cleansing his feet, he will never accept his master hanging on a cross. A cross reserved for the worst of the worst criminals. A cross that carried with it the curse of God. Deuteronomy chapter 21. 
If you can't let the master serve you in foot washing, you'll have an even harder time letting him serve you in the crucifixion. Peter responds in verse 9. Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head. He still doesn't get it. It's like Jesus is like, bro, I'm not talking about this anymore, man. Pay attention. Listen. So Jesus responds to him. He says, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you're clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was about to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. This leads to the second way Jesus demonstrates his love for us, that even to the end, the salvation of Christ is available to us. Jesus, in these last moments of his life, holds out the invitation to be cleansed. Spiritually cleansed from all their sin to these men whose sins are putting him on the cross. To us, his own, whose sins put Christ on the cross. And unless Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sin, which is what this is talking about here, what foot washing signifies, unless he cleanses us from our sin, we will have no part with him. We will not share in the inheritance that he has prepared for us. Emmanuel Church, the entry point into salvation is allowing Jesus Christ to serve us. There is no sin that he cannot cleanse. There is no filth that he cannot wash away. I mean, for those here who have not put their faith in the cleansing power of Christ, he is stooping to serve you. He is holding out to you the invitation to be cleansed from all your uncleannesses through his shed blood on the cross. Every ounce of guilt can be forgiven. Every secret sin you're afraid to even tell your best of friends can be washed away. Let him wash you today. And for those of us who have been cleansed, for those of us who have bathed, to use the language of verse 10, who have had our sins cleansed by Christ, through his grace, by faith in him, our feet still get dirty, right? Our feet still get grimy. Although we have been washed, sin still seems to scuff us up. And Jesus still stoops, church. He still stoops to wash our feet, not for forgiveness of sin that's been done, but he stoops to wash our feet and restore right communion with him, right relationship to him. When those of us in Christ still, still cling to guilt and shame, when we continue to hide in our sin, isolating ourselves from others, as we talked about last week, when, when we fig leaf our nakedness, covering up our shortcomings and our vulnerabilities and the messy parts of our lives, and we think to ourselves, if anyone knew that, dot, 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 or if anyone found out, dot, 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 how can Jesus still love me when I, dot, 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 when we think those things, Christian, we are in essence saying with Peter, as the Savior's kneeling down to wash our feet, offering us renewal and restoration from his very self, we are saying, Jesus, you shall never wash my feet. The filth's too great. The dirt and the grime are too thick. Allow the Savior to serve you, church. Jesus Christ, as our great high priest, is still offering his priestly work to us to cleanse us from the grime that scuffs us up 
and disrupts our fellowship with him. He desires to serve you. Let him. Let him. He loves you, Christian. He loves you, even to the very end. Jesus demonstrates his love for us to the end by having us in his thoughts as the cross loomed, by serving us in humility, by offering us salvation and cleansing, but he doesn't leave it at that. He calls on us as his people to emulate his heart and his actions towards one another. The church of Christ follows his example. We follow his example. Verses 12 through 17, let me read it again. When Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and assumed, resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your teacher and Lord, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I've done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So how do we follow his example? Well, first, we listen to him as our teacher. As Christ followed the direction of his father, so we too follow the direction of Christ. The content, when we allow Jesus to teach us, the content and the methods of being taught by him are oftentimes not what we expect. I mean, Jesus is teaching his disciples here and us in unexpected ways. Ways that fly in the face of cultural norms of our day, of their day. And our response is not to play the part of Peter, rejecting the lessons of Christ because they don't fit with cultural expectations and behaviors. Now, lessons for us, church, are learned primarily from the words of Jesus, right? Namely, through the canon of Scripture, the Bible, what we have here. You know, I'm not, a, I'm, a, I'm not a big fan of red letter Bibles. If you have one, keep it. Great. Please read it. But I'm not personally a big fan of that. Praise God for the Bible. I'm glad we have it, obviously. But I'm not a big fan of red letter Bibles because I think it unintentionally creates a false dichotomy when it comes to the words of the Bible. As if the words of Jesus are more important than the other words of the Scriptures. Because here's the deal. Every word in the Bible are the words of Jesus, right? Every letter is a red letter, not just a few. You know, the Trinitarian God we worship is the author of the Scriptures. So every word recorded in this book we cherish and we sit under and we learn from because they're the words of Christ to us, not just the literal words when he was on the earth. You know, so often when the church seeks to live our lives in obedience to the Bible, I can't tell you how many times I've heard this, um, the way we seek to submit ourselves is not in line with the cultural narratives of the day, whether that be in cases of, of gender or sexuality or self-expression or fill-in-the-blank, whatever it is. And oftentimes the response we get, even from those within the church, is, well, Jesus never addressed that or Jesus never said anything about that. It's pitting the red letters against the rest. It's what's happening. That the words of Jesus carry more weight for my life than the rest of the scripture. So I will discard the rest and just hold on to the words of Christ. But we let Jesus teach us through every word of the scriptures. Not just those he physically uttered out of his mouth 2,000 years ago. Because every word is his word. 
So Jesus, we let Jesus teach us primarily through his word. But the second way we follow the example of Christ is we submit to Jesus as our Lord. Jesus submitted to the Father's will as he was on earth, so we too submit to the will of Christ in our lives. You know, it's one thing to be taught. It's quite another to implement the lessons, right? I mean, this is James 1, 22 to 25. Be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone's a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently in his natural face in the mirror, For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who acts, but no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. In the New Testament, the word Lord, and we see here in the text, the word Lord, a title, it was a title of supreme authority, it was a title of deity. It's the way it's used. And one of our primary expressions of believing Jesus is Lord is allowing him to be our teacher. And when we come across something in the scriptures that unsettles us or we wrestle with or isn't popular, the issue is not with the Bible, the issue is with us. It's with us. Scripture is perfect. We are not. So we allow Jesus to be our teacher and Lord. That's the second thing. Third way we emulate Christ. We think of others as better than ourselves. Because Christ has served us, we now have an obligation to serve one another. 1 John 3.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If Jesus Christ, our master and our sender, humbled himself to wash our feet, humbled himself to die a sinner's death on the cross for a bunch of God-hating rebels, which we were, if he, the creator and sustainer of all things, did that for you and for me, how much more ought we to do that for one another? There's nothing we should not be willing to do for the sake of one another. Jesus Christ loved us to the end. We must love one another to the end. To quote the hymn writer, Brian Wren. Great God, in Christ you call our name and then receive us as your own, not through some merit, right, or claim, but by your gracious love alone. We strain to glimpse your mercy seat and find you kneeling at our feet. And take the towel and break the bread and humble us and call us friends. Suffer and serve till we are fed and show how grandly love intends to work till all creation sings to fill all worlds to crown all things. When tragedy strikes those among us, may the hurting find us stooping at their feet. When marriages in this body are faltering and feeble, may those husbands and wives find us stooping at their feet. When children are adopted and fostered and born among us, may those parents find us stooping at their feet. When addictions are battled and sins are committed and mistakes are made, may those who struggle find us stooping at their feet. When victims are harmed, may those who are offended find us stooping at their feet. 
May we be a church not known as mere hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And may our doing be done with a towel and a basin, with scuffed up knees and the compassion and love of Christ in our eyes. We love one another by serving one another, for Christ has loved us and served us even to the end. So we love each other and serve each other to the end, all the way. Jesus loves us, church. He loves us. May we love one another. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for leaving your heavenly throne and assuming the place of the lowest, most despised servant. You not only washed our feet, but you bore our sin on the cross. You washed our feet as a servant and you died a death as a criminal, even though you had committed no sin, committed no crime. Forgive us in those times where we think we are better than we are. Forgive us in those times where we have assumed higher places than the lowly places we are called to occupy. Have mercy on us, O God, that we have neglected to act like our Savior. Give us the strength through the Holy Spirit to be men and women, boys and girls, who stoop to the lowest degree to serve one another. In times where it's convenient and inconvenient, in those times where we have time in the day and those times where we don't have time in the day, to those times where it costs us something and those times where it doesn't cost us much. Serving one another is not about convenience. If that was the case, Jesus would have never come. So give us the power and the grace to look upon our Savior and live our lives in obedience to Him, following His example and how we relate to one another. We will not be perfect in it. But Father, we are called to do it. Thank you, Jesus, for your love for us, for loving us to the end, even when we blow it. You love us to the end. We pray these things in your name. Amen. This has been a sermon from Emmanuel Church. To learn more about Emmanuel or to give, go to Emmanuel with an I, Birmingham.com. You can also follow us on Facebook or Instagram at Emmanuel Birmingham.